If your Bibles go with me to Ephesians chapter 5, we'll be exclusively in verse 17 this morning. Chapter 5, verse 17. If you want to have your Bibles there and ready, we'll read it in a few minutes. I want to draw your attention to this thought. Discerning what the will of God is. Discerning what the will of God is. This is something that broadly human culture talks about, and particularly people in the church talk about. What is God's will? What is God's will? I just want to know what God's will is for my life. As parents, we want to know what is God's will for my children. We want to know what is God's will for my life. I want to know, give you some examples here, if I am supposed to go this career route or the other. Should I change careers? I want to know if it's God's will that we should have another child. I want to know if it's God's will concerning which president we should vote for. Maybe we want to know what God's will is concerning the role I am to serve in God's kingdom. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. Hopefully, our desiring to know God's will moves beyond these kind of lofty and big decisions and moves into the more daily practical decisions. For example, wonder what God's will is when it comes to these examples. What does my parenting need to look like today? And particularly for this specific child. What is God's will concerning that? Or how about, what is God's will concerning the next conversation that I need to have with my spouse? Whether it's a conversation that is deep and maybe tough to have, or it's just simply a casual conversation where you're continuing to invest in his or her walk with Christ. But what is God's will concerning this conversation? Or how about this, what is God's will for my relationship with my workplace, my boss, my co-workers? What is God's will for this place? How about my neighbors? What is God's will for my relationship with my neighbors? We all, I think, sitting here are saying, yes, I want to know what God's will is. But I think we need to ask this next question. Do we really want to know God's will? Like, Do we truly 
really deep down desire to do, to know, and then to do what is pleasing to God. To do what will bring Him most glory. Him most glory. To do what will make His glory alone shine for all the earth to see. Like, do we really, truly want to lay down our wills in order to discover God's? Let me give us maybe a diagnostic question to help us figure out do I truly, really, genuinely, deeply want to know God's will? Here's a diagnostic question. What counsel have you sought recently? Let me define that. What have you gone, the decision you need to make or a direction you need to move in life? Have you gone to the scriptures and searched them diligently? A second thought with this, what counsel have you sought recently? With whom, like, have you walked with wise people and searched them diligently? And a third of what counsel have you sought recently? Have you asked God to help you die to your sin-tainted will in order to discover His? So some helpful diagnostic questions. I'm going to argue today that if all three of those things are not present, then you don't really want to know what God's will is. If these three things, going to the Scriptures, walking with wise people, and asking God through prayer, if these three things are not present regularly, rhythmically, all the time, then I think the reality is this, that we are not searching for God's will, we are simply searching for reasons to feel good about our own wills about our own plans, about our own agenda, about our own desires. If you're not in the Scriptures regularly, you don't care about God's will. Because if you did, you would go read it to learn it. What you care about is your will. If you don't walk with wise people who will challenge your decisions, and challenge you to push back and to look at what does God want, then you don't care what God wants. And I would even argue that if you're not doing those other two, that when you even pray, asking to know what God's will, you don't really want to know what God's will is. Because if you did, you would be doing the other two. What you really want is for God to move in such a way to make you feel good about your own will. You see, we have our desires. And instead of wrestling with whether or not they are pleasing to God, what we do is we wrestle around trying to find support in order to make them happen. 
in order to make our desires feel worthy and good. So instead of laying down our desires at the feet of Jesus, we search everywhere else to find support for our desires. So again, here's what we do. We, we won't search the scriptures, or if we do, we twist them till we feel good. Or we will only seek counsel from those whom we feel are the least threat to our agenda. Like we'll seek counsel from someone who barely knows us. Or maybe someone we're superior to in whatever way. Like th- th- those things don't even make sense unless you're simply looking for someone to affirm your agenda. And here's the deal. We don't realize this from the very beginning. That we will never at least sparingly at best, do what is pleasing to the Lord. We will end up doing largely what is pleasing to ourselves. And Paul here says this in verse 15, 16, and 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil Verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray. Father, I pray that that we would just have a spirit of humility. Even as I preach this, I know, Father, that your word is going to uncover thorns in people's lives, and I do not intend, do not desire to be harsh or unkind. But Father, I know that your word and even my own will fights against preaching what needs to be said because of sin in my own heart. And Father, I pray that your word would do what it's supposed to do and that we would be pleased with whatever outcome that is. Father, I give you praise and ask for your help. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. The general exhortation here, let me remind us, is this. With urgency, examine accurately every aspect of your life. We're still carrying on that theme. Now you're going to have to listen pretty quickly because I have about 3,000 words to get through. Um, and if I'm not looking down then I'm, and I'm looking up and talking, I'm adding words to my script if you haven't noticed that. So we have to work through pretty quickly here. I want to give you this, eight marks of a fool. Eight marks of a fool. There's lots more marks than this, and there's maybe even this could be whittled down to a, a, more, uh, a smaller list here, but eight marks of a fool. I want to make sure that we stepped on all the toes we possibly could. He ultimately, he despises, he or she, despises knowing and depending on God. That's kind of, again, the, kind of the main thrust of where we're headed today. He says, therefore, do not be foolish. Therefore, do not be foolish. Now, I'm not going, these eight marks are not going to be up on the screen. You can just jot these down as we go. What is foolish? Obviously, foolish, Paul is going to have in his mind the Old Testament working and understanding of the term foolish. So we'll look at the Old Testament for a handful of these. 
first one is this, the fool is careless. The fool is careless. You should look at your life and see where you are careless. Let me read to you Proverbs 21.20. It says, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. You see the carelessness of the fool. Let me give you some application. Careless with his possessions. But it means more than that. Careless with his words. Careless with the people around him. Careless with his responsibilities. He is generally careless. That is the fool. Second mark. He is governed by feelings. He is governed by feelings. This is very related to 17 of chapter 5 in Ephesians. We'll get to it in a few moments, but just a few thoughts here. Governed by feelings. Here's the deal. They do not want to use their brains. They don't want to use their brains. They want to use their emotions. They don't want to understand the ways of God. They want to feel the ways of God. They're governed and ran by their feelings. Words often come out of their mouth without much biblical thought, if any at all. Driven by feelings. More on that in a bit. They do not, the fool does not, number three, does not value rightness. Not righteousness, but rightness. The fool does not value rightness. Proverbs 10, 23. Listen to these words. Doing right, I'm sorry, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. But wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. So we look at our own lives and go, where am I shrugging off what I know is right? Where am I justifying what I want to do, the way I want to feel, the desires I have? Where am I justifying that when I know if they are wrong, you're making a joke of rightness? Closely related to feelings is the idea of being governed by desires. Governed by desires. I must have what I like, and what I like is right. I must have what I like, and what I like is right. You see David and Bathsheba, right? David is governed by his desires. You see this in Ephesians 2, that we were all governed by our desires. Number f- one, two, three, four, five. Number five, he lacks understanding. The fool lacks understanding. Listen, Paul is saying, do not be any of these things. He lacks understanding. Proverbs 17, 18, one who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. 
one who lacks sense, it lacks understanding is the idea there. The one who lacks understanding goes ahead and does something foolish. You know, the sad thing is that a fool often does not realize that he or she is a fool or being foolish. Listen, we all have the tendency to be foolish and to act like the fool. That's why we need other people who aren't blind to it around us. More on that in a bit. Number seven, he's governed by impulses and instincts. Again, very similar to the idea of feelings and to the idea of desires, but he's governed by impulses and instincts. How about this? How about this? I'm sure every one of us in this room is, has done this before. Well, my gut is telling me to do this. No real reason or objective understanding. It's just my gut's telling me to do this. Now, now understand, listen. I'm, I'm not saying feelings are irrelevant, not saying desires are irrelevant, not even saying that maybe some kind of gut instinct might be something more than the Taco Bell you ate. Like, it might be. But I'm driving to a bigger point here. Number eight. Eight. The fool despises wisdom. He despises wisdom. <clears throat> Proverbs one twenty two. Listen to Proverbs one twenty two. He says, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? They despise wisdom. Again, let me ask you some, the similar diagnostic questions I asked earlier. How often do you seek wisdom? How often do you seek wisdom? We're talking about not being wise, unwise, but being wise. Not being a fool, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. How often do you seek wisdom? So how often do you read your scriptures? How often do you seek counsel for life and godliness matters? How often do you pray for such things? Again, I'm going to argue a little bit that these are a package deal. One of the people that has encouraged me the most with this has been your other pastor. I watch Rusty seek wisdom from the scriptures every day. Always thinking through what God has said concerning any decision that is made. It pushes me to do the same thing. Even when I don't like it. I watch Rusty seek wisdom from other people. Guys, I, I, I'm giving this as an example because we can, we can look at that and, and we can imitate this. But I watch him seek counsel many times, multiple times a week from other people. And not just on like, like 
I mean, yes, on practical things, that's, that's good, but like, but like on how should I think about this, or how should I handle the situation, or how should I care for this person, and how can I deal with the sin that's in my heart, or I got to make this decision in life, and weekly, guys, weekly, and the question I would pose for us is how many of us go weeks without inviting the wisdom of the scriptures into our life, the wisdom of other people into our lives? I watch Rusty pray. He prays often and he depends on prayer. I'm able to walk life with him and as I walk life with him, I'm able to look and go, the outcome of his way of life is not perfect, but is by and large honoring to God. That's something that's worthy of my imitation. And it encourages my soul. It spurs me on. So the question is, is you might think you like wisdom. But if you're not seeking wisdom, then you actually despise wisdom. What you're probably enjoying is a display of your own ability. Of your own wisdom. Even as finite and limited as it is. You just kind of like to make decisions and make sure they go good, and then you get some glory for that, and that's what you really enjoy. Instead of, the opposite would be, you know, this person advised me to do this, and the scriptures spoke about this, and my heart wanted to do this, but I submitted to that. Man, who gets the glory for that? I mean, unless you're like super prideful, and you're going, well, it was me who submitted to that. Isn't that awesome, right? I mean, I guess you could do that, Eight marks. Take a look at those. Reflect on those this week. I could say a ton more, but let's move on. Here's what pool. Here's what pool. Here's what Paul is actually saying. Okay, you can't miss this. Paul is actually saying here that the foolish people who act foolishly, particularly we're talking about Christians here, those who've been redeemed, who act foolishly. That they are returning to the way of the Gentiles, which is described in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. That, that to act foolishly is a return to death. That to act foolishly is a return to selfish desires. That to act foolishly is a return to Satan's rule. Don't miss that. That's what he's juxtaposing here, right? He's saying that Christians now act this way, as where before they act like Ephesians 2, verse 1, 2, and 3. Dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of the, uh, the prince of the power and, and such. You know, ultimately, I think the theme of the fool is that he despises knowing God and the dependence that is then spurred from knowing God. I know God, and I have to depend on God. He does not think adequately. The fool does not think adequately. He does not care to know objectively the will of God and to carefully think about its practices in his life. Again, 
You cannot claim that you love and want to know the will of God if you're not in the Scriptures regularly, if you're not seeking counsel regularly, if you're not praying regularly. You see, the fool refuses to acknowledge dependence on God and acts foolishly and presumptuously. He presumes upon his own ability. So, are you a fool? I must admit, there are many times in my life, even recently, where I have been foolish. So let's talk about this idea of wisdom. Talk about this idea of wisdom. You see, the wise will grow in knowing and depending on the Lord's will. The wise will grow in knowing and depending on the Lord's will. Again, Paul is doing another juxtaposition here. He's saying, instead of this, do this. Instead of being like this, be like this. He's giving us a contrast here. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but instead, understand what the will of the Lord is. So instead of being foolish, what's the alternative? Understanding what the will of the Lord is. What's the alternative if you're not trying to understand what the will of the Lord is? You're foolish. So let's kind of break down this idea of, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You see this uh, this verb here, understand. Paul is commanding us to understand. Yes, Paul is telling us to do something. He's not just suggesting it. He's telling us to do something. And with great force, I might add. He's saying that the content, first of all, like to be grasped a hold of, is God's divine will. Right? The divine will. But this verb that Paul uses, this verb understand, or whatever word your Bible says, literally means this. To comprehend or gain insight into something. To comprehend to gain insight into something, to understand. Let me tell you, to to help us understand what he's talking about, let me tell you what he's not talking about. He's not talking about the idea of emotions or feelings here. He's not saying, I want you to feel what the Lord's will is, or I want you to be happy about what the Lord, or I want you to have an emotional charge about what the will of the Lord is. He's not saying any of those. He's saying, I want you to mentally grasp a hold of what God's will is. He doesn't want you to throw a fleece. He's not telling you to see which door opens and which one's shut. I mean, by the way, Maybe God wants you to open the door that's shut. Or maybe He doesn't want you to walk through the door that's open. That's a side note. Rusty wanted me to make sure I got that one in there. He's like, will you just address this door opening thing? It drives me crazy. So there you go. Shout out to you, Russ. Paul's not telling us to 
he wants us to feel good about these things. He wants us to mentally understand. He doesn't want us to know what feels right or what catches our emotions and, and grips a hold of our heart. He wants us to mentally know and understand and grasp a hold of what the will of the Lord is. He wants us to objectively and clearly mentally grasp and understand what the will of the Lord is, particularly for this. Day by day and moment by moment living. Day by day and moment by moment living. More on that in a few. You see, the implication here is this. Don't miss this. Is that God's will can be discerned mentally. See, for years and decades, and particularly in America, the, the will of God has been made into some kind of supernatural, crazy idea that you've got to have some sort of divine intervention split open the sky to tell you what God's will is. You know, the funny thing about that is this. First of all, how could you ever be sure that you're actually hearing from God? You cannot be. Second of all, who can hold you accountable to that? You can't be. You can't be. Oh, well, well, no, that wasn't real. It was just Taco Bell, right? I mean, who am I to tell you that that was just Taco Bell? I'm not. Who are you to know for sure that it wasn't? Would be the other question. So the implication here from Paul is that you can understand it. I, mean, I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me. That I can know God's will. Like why would he command us to do something that we cannot do? Right? I mean, now there's ways in which we do that, but that's encouraging to me. I don't have to just go through life going, okay, what feels best and, and what is emotionally tugging on my heart? No, I can know. I can know. No matter how I feel, no matter what I desire, no matter what I want, I can know what God's will is. I can know it. But I think part of the other reason why we don't like the idea of the fact that we can mentally know it is because what we don't really want to do is find God's will. What we want to do is find support for the wills that we've become emotionally attached to. The desires that our hearts are longing for. So we find support. And, and some of us, if we're a little more spiritual, we'll, we'll try and find mental support. But what's driving? It's not the mental understanding. It's the emotional attachment. Right? And whatever comes first in our order of priorities will taint everything else after it. So if our emotional attachment to any particular decision is to our will and our desires, then it's going to taint our reading of scriptures. It's going to taint our seeking of counsel. It's going to taint everything else below that but if our knowledge of God is of utmost importance to us and mentally understanding his will then that will taint everything else afterwards there's a reason why Paul says don't be foolish but mentally grasp a hold of the will of God because you can you see in the first half of Ephesians 
talk a little bit about the will of God, the God's will. And the first half of Ephesians, it refers to God's saving plan. That this is his will. It refers to, catch this, it refers to God's doing. So in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the idea of God's will refers to God's doing. His plan, his actions. I'll give you examples here. What, chapter 1, you can look at these later. Chapter 1, verse 9 through 10. It refers to the mystery, the unifying of everything in Christ. That that is God's will. Let me say this before I read these next two examples. That these are foundational to our seeking God's will. You see, if we skip over this, this, the gospel part of God's will, then it will become whatever's good news to us instead of us being founded on whatever was God's good news. Right? Does that make sense? So if it's God's agenda, His will, His plan of unifying everything, and that's what we treasure most, then that will necessarily break our agenda and our will and bring us humbly before the Father where we can actually know His will. Chapter 1, verse 11. God works everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined men and women for adoption as His sons and daughters. Right? He called them to be blameless and holy. Again, this is God's will. This is what God is doing. Chapters 1, 2, and 3. But now, Paul's going to refer to God's will in a different way. Now Paul, and for the rest of Ephesians, the idea of God's will is the idea of the responsibility of every believer to work it out day by day and moment by moment. Now, that's a significant difference. God's will and His doings, now man's responsibility to live in living out, sorry, to, to live in a way that, that, in, that puts into practice, to use our language from a few weeks ago, that puts into practice God's will. Now it's our responsibility. It's not our responsibility in the sense of, all right, God's done His part, now we've got to do our part. Right? That's not what I'm saying. God's done his part. God's going to continue doing his part. And here's where our part is in the midst of that. You see, we were given the big picture of God's will in the first part of Ephesians. Now we're given the finer details of God's will for each of our lives. Instead, Paul here is admonishing us, right? He's not just talking about God's big will. Paul's admonishing us now to appropriate it more fully in our lives, to take his will and apply it specifically to every area of our lives, our thought lives, our emotions, our decisions, the way we treat people, so on and so forth, the way we spend our money, everything. Let me just pause for a moment. Like, the first one, two, three chapters of Ephesians has been largely these grand, incredible ideas about who God is and what God has done, right? Just marvelous, rescued us out of the pit of darkness and all that, right? So here's what we've been doing, we have been doing now for a few weeks, and we'll continue for the rest of this year at least, Okay? I'm telling you about how long it's going to take us to get through Ephesians, right? Here's what he's doing now. He's taking 
that information about God's gospel. And he is taking it and stepping on every little one of our piggies. Everyone. Right? You know what a piggy is? It's your toes. Okay? He's stepping on each one of our toes. Here's what's going to happen. I've already seen it happening in the past few weeks. And it has like, just pushed me to depend on the Lord. Is that it is, it is revealing thorns in people's lives. You see, when the heat of the scriptures come, they produce one of two things, never anything in the middle. They either produce fruit or they produce thorns. And that's a matter of how we are live, we're living by faith in Christ, it will produce fruit. If we're living by faith in our own will and ability, it will produce thorns. You see, we have to understand Paul is encouraging us to grab a hold of God's mystery and then understand its implications and its application for day-to-day living. Paul's telling us the same thing that he did in the Philipp- to the Philippian Christians. Chapter 2, verse 12. He says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Listen here, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Leave the verse up on the screen for a few moments here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is what Paul's talking about. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. That's how you work out the salvation, with fear and trembling. And then we obviously have to understand this in the context of verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that's the, it's the, I work hard as if it depends on me, but trusting and knowing that it depends on God. I work hard, but I know that it ultimately depends on God, and there I find my rest. But we still have this responsibility to work hard, to understand what the will of the Lord is. You see, God's will is for the mental understanding to lead to right conduct, to lead to right living. In fact, living in a godly and blameless fashion is an essential element of the will of God. Think back to chapter 1. He's called, his will, He's called us to be holy and blameless. So this idea of right conduct is absolutely essential. Because this was the goal of our very election. Chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. You see, careful behavior is at the very core of God's divine will. Careful behavior. Listen. I think so many times, like, we spend time wanting to know, am I supposed to do that, or am I supposed to do this, and so on and so forth. And we kind of skip over the fact that it's this transformation of how we think at our very core is God's divine will. So we spend time trying to think about this and trying to think about that, and instead of being transformed from the inside out, I'm going to talk about that here in a few moments. 
I was really helped this week. And if you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to go read it. Kevin DeYoung's little book, I don't even remember the title, it's really super long. It talks about discerning God's will, and it, it talks about without, is it, anyways, it's a funny subtitle. Go get the book, read it, it's really small, and it'll be helpful. The other book I'd recommend reading, I was served well from this week, is Discerning God's Will by Sinclair Ferguson as well. But I bring up DeYoung because <clears throat> I'm going to use a, f- uh, a handful of thoughts here from his book, I think are really helpful, and just kind of lay out this, how do we discern God's will? How do we discern God's will? And, and you know, as not as our typical fashion as steps one, two, three, and four, but I'm going to give you some very practical steps here, right? Some very practical things to consider here. And these are not on your things, so if you want to write them down, I'd encourage you to write them down. It might be wise in discerning God's will. The first one is this. God guides us by his invisible providence at all times. God guides us by his invisible providence at all times. Do you believe that? Like, like do, you, do you believe that God guides us at all times by his invisible providence? Ephesians 1.11, let me read to you, that's not going to be on the screen. It says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. His providence is functioning fully at all times. He is providing for and governing over his sovereign will at all times. Does that make sense? Is what providence means. Like he is kind of providing for and governing over and ensuring that his sovereign will takes place. Let me tell you this, because I just realized all these points are going to take you all forever to write them down. I will give them to you in house gathering. If you want to jot down a couple thoughts, because uh, I just realized everyone's heads were down, and I really want you to hear the thoughts I have afterwards. Um, so you can have those at house gathering this week. You can still jot down a couple thoughts here. Number two. So first of all, we have to understand and believe that God guides us by his invisible providence at all times. There's nothing that has happened or will ever happen in your life that God has not been the sovereign over. Nothing. Good, bad, all of it. And that everything happens for a reason. A perfect and loving reason. I mean, I, I say that and I and just and my flesh just goes, yeah, but not this. Yeah, but not this. No. Everything he works, he works for our good. Those who are called according to his purpose. Number two. Again, don't write, don't write this whole thing down. I'll be waiting on you forever. God can speak to his people in many different ways, guiding them with their conscious cooperation. Let me read to you Hebrews 1.1. It says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
Here's something I've noticed. We like to stop right there. We like to stop right there. Like we don't like to read on into verse 2, but we'll get there in a second. We're going to stop right there for a moment so I can prove a point. I think the reason many people like to claim this is so that they can say they have heard from God, so that they can affirm some kind of will of their own, and not actually be held accountable. Well, God told me to do this. Now, I don't know of anybody here that has done this, but let me give you a very real-life example. God told me to divorce my wife. Really? I've heard that. I've heard that. Now, in this particular case, there was absolutely zero grounds for divorce. Zero. Zero. God didn't tell this person to do this. It was probably the Taco Bell they ate. You see, you don't really believe the next verse if all you do is reference in life past experiences as support for your decisions more than you do the very scriptures of God. Because here's why. Listen to this next verse. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Here's the third way God guides us. It's not way God guides us, but this, these are all building. Again, don't write these down. I'll be waiting on you forever. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So yes, God's providential in the past, and, and God can still choose to speak otherwise, in, or in other ways. But here in Hebrews, we're told, in the number three, in the last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. He has spoken in many different ways in the past, but now He has spoken to us by His Son. Now, I don't want to get into the theology of that, but at the very least, because none of the other ways and people which spoke on behalf of God were sufficient. None of them sufficient. Jesus, sufficient. This means that God shows His own person and character and His will in the face of His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, God has spoken to us about Himself and His plans through the life, death, resurrection, and the teachings of Jesus. That He is the Word. And so the fourth thing that we need to know is that God continues to speak to us by His Son through His Spirit in the Scriptures. Let me repeat that one again. God continues to speak to us by His Son through His Spirit in the Scriptures. 
I want you to notice something. Look at, if you can put that Hebrews 1 verse 2 back up there. That'd be awesome. <clears throat> notice that the Hebrews passage says these words. God has spoken to us. All right, so who's God has spoken to us? Who's the us, right? The recipients of Hebrews. So God has spoken to us through Jesus. Now, this is where it's important to understand, like, the dating of different books. Hebrews was written when, in consideration of Jesus' death. After. After. So how is this so? How has Jesus spoken to the people receiving the book of Hebrews? How is this so? Jesus has been dead and ascended for a while now. Here's why. Because the author's assumption is that the son's speaking takes place through the Spirit in the Scriptures. Through the Spirit in the Scriptures. What the author of Hebrews is affirming here is that God speaks now primarily through His Son and for those who have come after Christ that He speaks to them through the Scriptures. would even argue that those even before Christ, through the Scriptures. So how does God speak to us today? By the Son, through the Spirit, in the Scriptures. Number five. Again, no need to write this down. Apart from the Spirit working through the scriptures, apart from that, God does not promise to use any other means to guide us, nor should we expect it. Apart from the Spirit working through the scriptures, God does not promise to use any other means to guide us, nor should we expect Him to. Listen, church, when we read the Bible, we know that these are God's words. We know that these are God's words. We believe that these are God's words. I was thinking about this in terms of praying and in terms of seeking counsel. Guys, if the counsel of other people lines up with the Scriptures... Like, this is important. This is good. This is what we should be looking for. Now, let me, let me get, say this too. Here's where the danger is. The danger is that many of us are very limited to only understanding what the Scriptures say explicitly. And it's a, it, yes, this is called a mental understanding of what's being implied in the text what the bigger pictures are painting for us. Like, and that's particularly there is where a lot of us are going to need help when it comes to understanding God's will. 
it's just a skill that you develop in time, but you have to want to develop it. I'm not talking about finding missing codes in the scriptures. I'm not talking about reading in between the lines. I'm not talking about any of those things. I'm just talking about being a reader and understanding the text. Wait, listen, guys, you can never, never be sure, sure of whether it is God speaking if it did not come from the Scriptures. You cannot be sure. Could you be right? Yes. Could it have been God? Yes, it could have been. But you cannot be, never be, 100% sure that it was. When you read Ephesians 5, verse 1, and he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You can believe with 100% certainty that that is God's words. So how does God guide us? He guides us by His word as it is understood and loved. He guides us by His word as it is understood and loved. And my last main point for this morning is this. Again, very helped from from Kevin DeYoung on this. We discern God's will by walking the way of wisdom. This is going to sound very familiar to just a couple weeks ago. We discern God's will by walking the way of wisdom. Let me point out to you very quickly here. The way of wisdom is not about just finding key things you need to discern the decision that you may that you need to make. Walking the way of wisdom is about being transformed from the inside out. That it's not just you're doing what you want to do and all of a sudden I have a decision I need to make and so I go do this this. No, the idea of walking the way of wisdom is changing the very way in which you walk to being one that does the three things we're going to talk about here in just a few moments. A couple more introductory thoughts here. He says in verse 17 again, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Again, we're still talking about this, understanding what the will of the Lord is. How do I discern that? Let me give you a couple thoughts here real quick before we really jump into that. First, we must be seeking hard to understand His gospel and His plan for redemption. First, we mu- that must be the priority. Again, I talked a few weeks about a few weeks ago about how, how none of us get the gospel. Like we have to work hard, and we all have much more room to grow in knowing and getting the gospel. The very fact that we might think we get it is, is evidence that we don't. So we must be hard seeking to understand the gospel and its plan for redemption. Here's how it has application here. I think many of us care not about God's gospel and plan of redemption, and instead, we just want to feel good about the next life decision that we need to make. But here's the deal. If the gospel is primary, and within that framework, that foundation, you search for God's will, then the biggest hindrance to discerning God's will will be removed, and that's yours. Your agenda must be broken 
Like it will be broken if you're seeking to know and love and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, your sinful will will begin to merge and become one and the same with His will. But you see, because we just want to know what God's will, we want to know what God's will, we want to know God's will, and we skip over top of God's will in the gospel, then we're left with just trying to get God to affirm our desires. Paul doesn't do that here. Paul takes us through God's will, God's plan, to be holy and blameless, to unite all things in Christ, to rescue us from darkness and bring us into light. And He lays all that out in chapters 1, 2, 3, and now he says, now day by day, moment by moment, discern with that foundation in mind, with that foundation wrapping around everything you think, now discern what is the perfect, pleasing will of God. See, fundamentally, wisdom is a recognition of dependence on God. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And what is dependence on God? It's humility. It's humbleness. This is what Paul is saying. You need to know the will of the Lord. You need to discern what is God's will. What's he saying? At the very beginning, it's, it's an indictment on our own wills. That you're not sufficient. You need to know what God's will is. That should spur in us humility. That we're dependent on this. But I wanted to know, like, the question is this. Do we feel dependent on this? Do we know we're dependent on this? Let me read to you Proverbs 2, verse 1 through 6. Listen to these words. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Listen. Listen to what he says. If you receive my words, if you treasure up my commandments with you, if you make your ear attentive to wisdom, if you incline your heart to understanding, what's he say? Call out for insight. Call out for wisdom. Call out for understanding. What do you think he means? Just, just go into your house and pray? Yeah, he means that, but more. We spend lots of time praying when, when the answer has already been given to us in the Scriptures. I'm not, I'm not saying pray less. I'm just saying don't just pray. We all should pray more, but we need to spend more time in the Scriptures too, and we need to spend more time seeking counsel when it comes to understanding the Scriptures. But he says this, call out for insight. Call out. Does that sound like someone who has it figured out? Does that sound like someone who just knows what to do at every moment and every step by step and day by day and just has it? What's he saying? I mean, the picture being painted here is someone who walks calling out for wisdom every moment, every day, not being sure of himself, but being sure of God's provision and guiding him. 
call out for insight. So what is this walking the way of wisdom? First one is the scriptures. Walk the way of wisdom. The scriptures. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. When we read the scriptures, we can be confident that is the voice of God. Why? At the very least, because Hebrews 1-2 tells us it is. Now clearly we can twist it and we can read only what we want to read, right? You ever do that? You ever find yourself wanting to find passages to support your own desires and your own wills? Yes. Me too. Guilty. Guys, this is at least in part why the body and your elders are so important. Because they're going to read and teach you passages that you probably wouldn't read otherwise. Like this one right here. Romans 12, 1 through 2, says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Okay, listen, you gotta, you gotta really catch this first. I'm just gonna be here for a moment. Present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what? What is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? What are the three commands here? One, present your body as a living sacrifice. Two, do not be conformed to the world. Three, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What are those necessary for? that you may discern what is the will of God. That you may discern what is the will of God. If we do these three things, we will discern what is the will of God. Do you see that? Here's the reality, though. We look for shortcuts. We want shortcuts to figure this out. We don't really want to be a living sacrifice. That costs us too much. We really like being conformed to the world. It feels too good. And the renewal of our minds, we'd rather let our emotions take over. Like, those are good. There's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. But instead, there's a pathway. And it's a pathway provided by God. Because this present your life as a living sacrifice. Yes, we have a responsibility, but fundamentally and more foundationally, who's the one that does that? God. God is the one who enables us to be living sacrifices. Whose grace is it that helps us to not be conformed to the world? God's. Who is it that ultimately renews our minds? It's God. But we have a responsibility. It doesn't mean we just sit there, right, and os- you know, like osmosis, we just let it kind of come in. Like we have to work. But it's God. We have to work, but it's God. So walk the way of wisdom. The way of wisdom is regularly, rhythmically intaking the Word of God. Regularly, rhythmically. I'm not going to give you amount of time a day. I'm not going to tell you how many times a week. I'm just telling you, regularly, rhythmically, you should be in the Word of God. That's the way of wisdom. Second, the way of wisdom is this counsel. Seeking counsel. Seeking counsel. 
again, helped out in all three of these main points by Kevin DeYoung. Those who are wise read and memorize the Bible. They love to hear it read, preached, and sung. But the wise also know you need to read the Bible in community. You must read the Bible in community. If you want to make wise decisions, we must seek the advice and counsel from others. Must. I was talking to Sarah last night about this particular point. And just, just from a purely pragmatic argument here, there are things in Scripture that I understand better than Rusty. And there are things in Scripture that he understands better than me. Can you imagine where that could be useful? Yes. Around this body, there are people who understand things in Scripture better than you do. Some of that's just because you haven't gotten time to study it yet. And that's okay. I'm not saying this is necessarily a failure. Like, it's not necessarily a failure. Like, I, I, when I look at Rusty, I feel like he understands the Old Testament better than I do. He's all the time referring to the Old Testament. And I'm going, where was that at? I need to go read that. Tag on it. But it's helpful because he can share these stories and, and what's happening and, and, and what that means for what we're struggling with or I'm struggling with personally or whatever the case is. So just very practically, and we talked about how we, how we get to experience Christ as we've been gifted in different ways. Well, some of that's practical in the sense that some of us understand different parts of the Scriptures differently. And we need these help. But if we want to make wise decisions, we must seek advice and counsel from others. It's not an option. It's not an option. Guys, this is especially true when dealing with non-ethical choices or decisions that aren't clearly laid out in Scripture. Things that aren't like super black and white. See, Christians for decades in the United States have been so anemic and so weak when it comes to the Scriptures that they can only depend on seeing something in black and white. But the Bible speaks beyond that. So, Walk in the way of wisdom. He talks about counsel. But counsel. Listen to these Proverbs. Let me give these Proverbs to you. Proverbs 1, verse 5. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. You hear that? The Proverbs is telling you, let the one who understands obtain guidance. I mean, think of, even just think about that little phrase right there. The one who understands. He's talking about, one, he has an understanding, right? And he's seeking guidance. Obtain guidance. Proverbs 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 15, 22. Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. We'll come back to that one in a few moments. Proverbs 19.20. Listen to advice. Listen. And accept instruction. 
that you may gain wisdom in the future. Do any of these things point to some kind of self-sufficient ruling of life? No. They point to dependence. They point to neediness and brokenness and humility. That's what they point to. They point us to going, I need something outside myself. In my notes, I have these words. What blows my mind is the amount of major life decisions, even in this church, that are made without seeking counsel. Or at best, we'll seek counsel from those who can't challenge our agenda too hard. Listen, guys, wisdom is not, listen, wisdom is not knowing how to do everything on your own. Wisdom is being dependent on God and His provision. That's what we just read here in Proverbs. Without the counsel of many, your plans fail. Listen to advice and instruction. You'll gain wisdom for the future. Let the one who understands obtain guidance. Why? Because there's this recognition that we are being pushed to understand and to walk the way of wisdom, which is this, that we need something outside of ourselves. When we live otherwise, we are being conformed to this world. We are doing the very thing in Romans 12 that we're told is the the hindrance to discovering the will of God. When we think that I've got this, that's the very thing that will keep you from discerning God's will. You've heard me say this before as well. We need counsel even outside of our marriage. You've heard me say this many times. I just want to make sure you connect that dot into this context. Where you're supposed to increasingly be unified. You're supposed to have each other's backs to a certain level. And you're supposed to naturally defend and take the side of your spouse. Like, that's a good thing. I'm not saying that that makes you avoid saying what needs to be said and what's hard and having hard guns. That's not what I'm saying. But there's this natural one flesh that is godly and that's coming, that, that should be coming. Let me give you some little bit of wisdom here. If you're riding down the road in the same car, both you and your spouse basically have the same view, Right? You basically have the same vantage point. I mean, it's a little different, right? Because she's technically, you know, well, in my car, she's technically two feet to my right. And, you know, and because I usually drive. I, she drove for like the first time forever uh, when we drove the other day. We went through Cincinnati, and I was trying to read. We were reading Sinclair Ferguson, trying to do that and drive at the same time. By the time we got to the Ark Encounter, my brain was fried, like just gone, uh, if you've ever read Sinclair Ferguson. Um, it was just gone. Anyways, I don't know why I told you that story, but you have the same vantage point. Listen, it's the same thing I'm arguing from up above. You need someone in a different car or someone on the side of the road or someone in a helicopter to speak into your life. You need that. Let alone this. Proverbs 15.22 says that without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Your spouse does not qualify as many advisors. 
This means you regularly need more than your spouse. Ask yourself this question. Do I have at least one or two strong followers of Jesus, not afraid to tell me what I need to hear that I seek counsel from regularly? If not, I think you're a fool. At the very least, living foolishly and dangerously. Here's some good questions. Are you willing to change your mind when another person's case has more merit than yours? Genuinely, are you willing to change your mind? How about this? Are you able to hear good advice when it comes from some mouth other than your own and may even contradict your ideas? Are you willing to admit, I didn't think of that? I see your point. Listen, if you rarely change your mind at someone else's advice, or you rarely seek counsel, then you are either a God, or you have mistaken yourself for one. The young quote, right there. Let me give you this last quote from, from Kevin DeYoung. It says this. He's, pretending, he's, he's talking as if it's God. He says this. Go seek advice, would you? That's why I've redeemed so many of you. Because you do fewer dumb things when you talk to each other. Get some advice. You might just hear my voice. Last point is this. Walk in the way of wisdom. Prayer. Walk in the way of wisdom. Search the scriptures. Seek wise counsel. Pray to God. Pray to God. Guys, discerning God's will is not do one of these three things. It's do all of these three things. But what, particularly, what should we pray for? Pray that God would give us a sign. Anybody ever watch Bruce Almighty? See that? Give me a sign, right? And a construction truck pulls out in front of him with a bunch of signs. Listen, I, I've counseled people that wanted signs from God and some obscure thing happens and somehow magically that's a sign. It just blows my mind. They thought it was a sign. Now I'm rapping for you now. What do we pray for? Pray for this illumination to mentally understand the scriptures. Pray. Ask God to help your mind understand the word of his son spoken in the scriptures particularly. You can pray for other things too, but let that be at its very foundation. Pray for the Holy Spirit to help you apply the scriptures, to illumine your mind, to apply the scriptures. What are you asking for when you do that? You're asking for wisdom. That's what you're asking. James tells us to ask for wisdom. That's what you're doing. You're asking God for wisdom. What do you do when you go seek counsel? What are you doing there? You're asking God for wisdom. When you go read the Bible, what are you doing there? You're asking God for wisdom. It's not just... 
ambiguously, you know, just kind of float your idea of, God, I, I kind of need some wisdom. Can you help me? No, like, ask God for wisdom. And you ask God for wisdom in multiple different ways. Pray for things that you know are God's will. Listen, that's where a lot of our praying and discernment of what God's will is needs, our praying needs to be concentrated is not in so much discovering something new, but aligning the things we're already doing. Our motives, our heart. Humility. Teachability. Are you teachable? And I like what Kevin DeYoung says this. Now make a decision. You've done these three things. Make a decision. Set the scriptures. Sought counsel. Prayed. Make a decision. Be open to course correction. Be open to, oh man, I, yeah, I, I, I must have heard something wrong or discerned something wrong. Or, but make a decision. The problem, though, is that we want to skip these steps and just make a decision. Whichever one is going to bring us the most apparent satisfaction. But you see, this is more than about just making big decisions in life, although it's at least that. It's a more about a way of life. The way of wisdom is a way of life. Listen, it takes a lot of trust. Because here's the problem. To do this walk, this way of wisdom, it takes trust. But it's different trust than you have and you rest in right now. You see, most of us rest in trusting ourselves. Our own abilities. Our own knowledge. Our own wisdom. And that's what brings us most comfort. But it takes a God-empowered trust to trust something outside ourselves. To trust the scriptures. To trust counsel. To trust in prayer. See, you're freer than you realize when you do this. When you trust in God and something outside of yourself, you're not locked up tight in this cage of dependence on self. You're free. The door's open. The door's wide open. See, dependence on God is right at the heart of wisdom and right at the heart of knowing His will. Dependence on God is right at the heart of wisdom and right at the heart of knowing His will. Our problem, though, is pride, myself included. We think the only one worthy of dependence is ourselves. And so we constantly walk around leaning into our own understanding. You follow me? This is the proneness of all of us in this room, is to lean into our own understanding. And I would argue that many times leaning into our spouse is doing the exact same thing. Why? Because if we've been married for any amount of time, we probably have similar understandings. Proverbs 3.5 says what? Trust in the Lord 
with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So the key to wisdom, the key to discerning God's will, I think ultimately is this, humble dependence on God. Humble dependence on God. A forsaking of dependence on self and an embracing of dependence on God. And how are we humble? How do we display humble dependence on God? It takes humility to lean into the Scriptures. It takes humility to lean into the counsel of others. And it takes humility to lean into prayer. It doesn't take humility to lean into ourselves. And in fact, it takes pride to do that. But it takes humility to lean into God. I want to encourage us to do that. If something, pride or whatever has been holding us up, that we would lay these at your throne. That we would lay these at the Father's throne. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to lay these at the feet of your throne. Father, if we would would lay down our pride. We would lay down our pride. And we would lay down our sin. And we would lay down our dependence on self. Or even our false assurance of dependence on self. Father, let's lay these things down. Let, Let us break our pride. Set us free from it, Father. Set us free from it. Let us be dependent on you. And these very practical ways you've shown us how we can seek your provision. We show dependence on you as we seek the scriptures, as we seek counsel, as we seek you in prayer. Father, I pray that that we would see this even in our Savior, Jesus Christ. That we would see his humble dependence on the Father. On you. As he studied the scriptures. Father, as he prayed. And as he sought counsel from others, particularly the Trinity, in ways that even we can't do. I pray that we look at our Savior as a model. That we would look at him as the one who did this perfectly on our behalf. Father, we would not leave here without hope, but we would leave here challenged and encouraged that you have provided a means for us to understand what is pleasing to you. Father, that you've even given us minds that we can grasp what your will is. I thank you for that, and thank you for your provision. It's in your son's most precious name we pray. Amen.